when you plan for a holiday meal or you plan for a wedding or you plan for Christmas, a lot goes into that uh, getting ready for something. I don't know if your house is like mine. My wife loves Thanksgiving and Christmas. I affectionately call her the Christmas monster because every year it gets bigger and bigger. It has a life of its own. We have to have a basement simply because my wife has so much stuff that goes in the basement that's Christmas. And uh, she really gets into it. And I cheer her on and she does all the decorating and I'm a horrible husband, I confessed. Um, but she loves to get ready for it. And we've got uh, table runners that are for the fall, table runners that are for Christmas. We've got chargers. I didn't even know what a charger was. Some of you guys don't either. It's okay. Uh, we've got chargers. We've got certain plates. We've got all the things that go in the middle of the table. And it is a major thing to prepare for those meals in our house. I mean, it is serious. It takes, you know, shopping for weeks on end and all these things that are made and the day before preparation, the day of preparation. And you spread this incredible feed, you know, trough out there for your family and friends. And in 20 minutes is a disaster. And you clean up for three or four more hours, and then you're miserable all day, and there you had it. And um, it's a joyful thing. But when you think about preparing, if you've, how many of you have prepared a wedding? You've either are planning one, or you just planned one, say, in the last year. How many of you planned a wedding? I feel your pain, yeah. And if you go through that process with one of your kids or you yourself, it's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of stuff. And why are we preparing for major birthdays, anniversaries, weddings? Why do we go to all this labor to get ready for a thing? Because it comes and goes. We're, we're sort of interesting creatures. Because we put so much into it being just right, whether it's the wedding or the Thanksgiving meal or the Christmas meal or the birthday or the 50th anniversary. And we plan and plan and plan to get ready for a thing. I want you to open your Bible to Luke 22 as we read about the Lord's preparation for the Last Supper. In Luke 22, we will see two preparations. We will see one Judas preparing to betray Jesus, and two, Jesus preparing for Passover. Let me ask you to stand for the first six verses, Luke 22. I like to read the first six verses, and then you can be seated afterwards. Luke 22, verses 1 to 6. Now, the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priest and the officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking an opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. You can be seated. Luke 1 gives us a time stamp about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was essentially a week-long celebration. It was a national holiday, and the Jews looked very forward to this, much like you might look forward to Thanksgiving or Christmas or to that wedding ceremony. It was a big deal, and the Jews loved to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. This national holiday involved many things. It involved a lot of food, a lot of singing, a lot of offerings beyond just the Paschal offering. There were many others as well. And it was a festive celebration where families would journey for days to go to the city. It was a big event. Everyone took off from work and they went into the old city, Jerusalem. Preparations are underway. 
It was a memorial. It was a memorialized perpetual calendar they were to keep. That every year they were to remember what happened after 400 plus years of slavery in Egypt, how God miraculously delivered his people, the Jew, out of Egyptian slavery and bondage and brutality. And through all the book of Exodus, one chapter is the true Exodus proper where they get out of Egypt. But all of it has to do with preparation to get out of Egypt. What's happening in the big picture? They're being redeemed from sin and consecrated to worship. They're being taken out of sin. They're a captive. It's an illustration of their own sin and the sin of Egypt and the penalty of sin. They're being taken out of that, redeemed out of that, and then the wilderness will strip the world away from them and they'll be consecrated to worship. That's the story of Exodus. Redemption from slavery, slavery to sin, slavery literally to Egypt, redemption, consecration, so they can worship God the way he wanted them to worship. Now they were to remember this and the way they were to remember it was the Passover celebration. It involved many things, but the most prominent features, of course, was the, the lamb, unblemished, one year old. Next cut, bled, blood put on the doorpost and the lintel of the house. The unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, the wine, all that had to happen in the meal. And then they were to be ready in haste. And when that was commemorated, God told Moses, this is a perpetual thing. You must do this thing. The pious, God-fearing, loving Jew couldn't wait to celebrate it, much like we might approach Thanksgiving or Christmas, but with far greater spiritual message than our Christian uh, Western holidays, we might say. Now, in this reminder and retelling of the story, uh, it was key to teach the children what they were to believe and how they were to believe it. So if you've been to a Seder meal, you will see the father of the house and he will ask his children questions and they will answer and reply. And as the children get older, they will have part of the Passover meal and they will start owning part of reading and asking questions. And then as they get married and have their own families, they will do the same because it was to teach them and they had to do this. Luke reminds us in this context of timestamp that the religious leaders are trying to kill Jesus. He's growing in popularity, so they're afraid of the population. He's a populist candidate. Everybody loves him. They come out like crazy when Jesus shows up. And the scribes and chief priests and Pharisees are meeting in Caiaphas' courtyard to try to plot, so far unsuccessfully, how to capture him and to kill him. Matthew 26, 3 and 4 talks about the plot in Caiaphas' courtyard. On the one hand, you have this public life this national celebration, this festivity, and they're all excited about this Jesus. And in private, you have the powers of darkness at work trying to capture him and to kill him, all going on. Sometime after the New Testament is closed, there's a Sanhedrin, which would be a Jewish text that is written that says, a certain Yeshu who practiced magic led Israel into apostasy and was executed by hanging on Passover Eve. And what that tells us outside the Bible is that we have information that corroborates the truth of Scripture. It's always nice when that happens, not that we need it, but it is a icing on the cake, if you will. Well, verse 3, and Satan entered into Judas. Satanas, Satanas from Hebrew, brought glossed into Greek. Satan in English simply means the evil one, the adversary, or the enemy. It becomes a name for the devil, a name for the personification, the reality of this angel who is known as Satan. 
Everything Satan does is allowed, you might say, in a box. God gives him a certain amount of freedom, but he also gives him some limitations and restrictions. We might look at the story of Job and where God says what he can do to Job, but there are certain things he cannot do to Job. And so in the, in the cosmic spiritual realm that's far beyond our recognition and sight, God is allowing Satan certain freedoms, but he also limits Satan's uh, effects and what he can do. And the constant tension of the biblical mind is that Satan is alive and well and doing his work, but God is yet in control. Nothing happens outside God's purview that does not make God the author of what Satan does. Hear that very clearly. It does not make God the author of what Satan does. We live in a fallen world, a fallen context. We're fallen creatures. Therefore, sin has consequences. And Satan is allowed certain purview. Now, rarely when we're in the midst of a problem or a crisis or difficulty do we ever see what's going on from the sovereign God is in control part. In fact, we may never until we step from this life to the next. But no matter what your experience or mine or even what this story tries to tell us, God's providential sovereignty is still in place. It's not out of balance. It's not falling apart. Now during your lifetime and mine, we've heard stories. Some of us old is older than me. You remember when stories like the Exorcist movies came out and the Omen film trilogies and those by today's standards are lightweight films. The, uh, the demonic seems to have, a Hollywood seems to have a fascination with the demonic with all sorts of movies that, uh, and this time of year around Halloween that just comes out in spades on television. All the interest in demons and what demons can and cannot do. Most of it of course is Hollywood hype, not to be believed, but sometimes we are, uh, uh, open to what the world tells us, and we need to be careful. Let me make a distinction. Uh, we use the term possession or demonization, or in the last decade, the word demonized has become popular. Uh, can a person be possessed by the devil? We certainly have the Gadarenes, the man of Gerasenes, who's possessed by a legion of demons. Uh, can that happen today? Uh, can a person be demonized, the word we've adopted the last decade, because we have trouble with saying a uh, a Christian who knows Christ and has the Holy Spirit indwelling them, that God would allow a demon inside that person. The Holy Spirit would not allow residency of a demon. So there's a lot of this it's, that leads into all sorts of tentacles. I simply want to say this. Um, demon possession, harassment, suppression, demonization, demonize, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Satan can only enter, possess, harass, demonize people who are open to it. A person must have himself or herself open to these activities in order for God to allow or permit those activities to happen to them. Again, Satan does not enter, possess, demonize a person who has not opened themselves up to it. And there's lots of ways we open ourselves up to it. Judas wanted nothing to do with God's will. Judas is open to something beyond God's will. Judas is known as the betrayer. In fact, forever he is known as Judas the betrayer. If you look up in your Merriam-Webster online dictionary today, a synonym you will see for the word betrayer, Judas. The Judas goat that leads other sheep to slaughter. It is a synonym of the concept of betrayal. Downton Abbey fans will, fans will remember Daisy talking to Miss Patmore. I was only trying to help, she says. Miss Patmore responds, well, I suppose Judas was only trying to help when he brought Judas to, Jesus to the garden. So we have a picture of this 
at time immemorial, he's the betrayer. He's the one who we look at, who turned Jesus over to the authorities. John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus answered him, Did I not myself not choose you, and yet one of you is a devil? Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? So there's a constant tension between what God allows and how Satan is working and active. And Judas will deliver Jesus over to death. We can only speculate why. We have some clues in the text, but I think we strain them too far. What we do know at the bigger picture is what the religious community could not do, an insider will do. And Judas, under the influence of Satan, will commit this atrocity. It's a chilling comment in Luke's pen. He was belonging to the number of the twelve. He's with him. He was picked by Christ with him the three, three and a half years that Christ was on. We call his earthly ministry. He saw what all the disciples saw. He saw what the apostles saw. He broke bread with the master. He ate with him. He traveled with him. And yet we learn proximity does not guarantee understanding who this Jesus is. I've said many times, and I will say it again and again and again, you and I must be students of our sin. When, when you and I choose to sin, when we know a thing to be wrong, and we choose to engage in it, when we cavalierly say, I, I, know, I know 1 John 1, 9, he'll forgive me if I ask for forgiveness, so I'm going to sin anyway. If we choose the pleasure of sin, knowing we will get forgiveness, we're opening ourselves into a very dangerous relationship with God in this life. And there's many, quote, cures to this, and I'm not saying this is the only one. But what I have learned is if you don't understand why you get pulled in, when you get pulled in, what are the triggers? Were you hungry, angry, lonely, tired? What was it that allowed you this segue to choose sin so easily? And as you watch those patterns, and they're very easy to identify, men and women, you begin to see, this is when I'm most vulnerable to sin and temptation. So what do I need to do? Well, God's Word, God's Spirit, and God's people are what keep me from sin. I've got to be in His Word daily. I've got to be asking His Spirit to help me all the time. And I've got to be around God's people who will give me a dope slap when I need it. Because sin is ever crouching, always at the door. The devil and his tempters are never at rest. And they're after you and me. And every time we sin, we have capitulated and caved to the flesh. Knowing in the back of our minds, oh God will forgive me. And Paul says in Romans 6 unequivocally, shall we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Never. Never. We're dead to sin. But yet that nature seems to always be crawling out of the grave. We'll never be sinless, but I do think we will sin less as we stay close to God's Word, God's people, and God's Spirit. And when we sin, we keep a short account. We ask Him to forgive us. We confess our sin, and we say, help me the next time. The Holy Spirit is your comforter in mind. Why do we not call on Him for comfort when we are discomforted and want to go into sin? And He says, I will leave my Spirit with you, and He will comfort you. And so Judas has opened himself up to a thing this ever-present temptation. Judas initiates the contact with the leaders, and he says to them in Matthew 26, 6, 15, what are you willing to give me? The crucifixion stage is now set. 
Forces that are beyond our description or imagination are now in play. An insider is going to betray his friend Jesus. The scribes and Pharisees and chief priests will be absolved. They will not be complicit in the process. They now have a deal. And all heaven and all hell is focused on the fate of this Jesus and what is going to happen. If, if I could say it in this way, the universe and the spiritual realm beyond our comprehension has stopped in time to watch what is now happening between these forces. Because what Christ is about to do will resolve something that has never been resolved. And everything hangs in the balance of the hours that are in front of him. Satan seems to have the edge. He's got an inside man to betray him. If nothing else, you and I must be warned that he is ever on the prowl, ever seeking to devour, always the false accuser. When you think of sin in broad strokes, isn't in some way all of our sin a betrayal? I mean, at least we're betraying God when we choose to sin. If we're married and we're emotionally involved with another person or sexually involved, we betrayed our spouse. Well, if I, if I do a sin that only affects me, well, that's a betrayal of conscience and a betrayal of people around you that you don't even know. There's no such thing as a secret sin. One of the founder of Dallas Seminary said, a secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. And so when these temptations come and when we justify them for all kinds of reasons, um, this will never stop, unfortunately. And it always is a betrayal. Uh, think of it as sort of gorging ourselves on a feeding buffet of sin for 30 pieces of silver. Or if you want more, name your price. I always go back to money, sex, and power. All my sins fit under one of those three categories. Money, sex, and power. And the temptations, lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, boastful pride of life. I betray my God. I betray my family. I betray the family of God. I betray my friends. Every time I, every time you choose to sin. And the problem with sin is it is insatiable. If it was not, you would look at pornography once and never again. If it was not, you would have one affair and never do it again. If it was not, you would steal once and never do it again. If it was not, you would experiment with something outside the boundary of heterosexuality once and never do it again. It's insatiable. And that's the lie that Satan whispers. You see, all sin, all sin is an illegitimate means to a legitimate end. All sin is an illegitimate means to a legitimate end. So, I lack intimacy, and I engage in it the wrong way. No, God has made a provision for holy, good intimacy. I, I need money. I need power. God has made appropriate ways for you to use money and power. But if you do it in an illegitimate fashion, it's sin. All sin is an illegitimate means to a legitimate end. And it will never satisfy where what God offers has a satisfaction. satisfaction. Now, it takes time to understand this. And that's what growth and maturity and living by faith is all about. And the things of the earth growing strangely dim as we follow him more at his word and trust that he has more ability to satisfy us. The enemy will never sleep. He will never stop. Hebrews 11.25, choosing rather to endure ill treatment. He's speaking of the men and women of faith. The people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin. Scripture is wonderfully honest. Sin is enjoyable. 
rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And we choose to engorge and engage our flesh in an illegitimate way. Well, because he never sleeps, never tires, he is never discouraged, he never feels defeated, and he whispers in our ears, we are overmatched, we are outgunned, yet our Savior is completely in control. And it's a choice of alignment. We are naked prey apart from Christ. In Christ we have defense. In Christ we have the ability to resist, to stand firm, to push against temptation, to change the subject. Well, the mood changes in the narrative dramatically, and we move into a section that deals with the Last Supper. We'll look today only at the preparation for the meal, and the weeks ahead we'll look at the meal proper, we'll look at the farewell discourse, his prediction of uh, Peter's betrayal, We'll look at um, the dispute about who's the greatest in the kingdom. We'll see uh, the prediction of P uh, Peter's denial, excuse me, uh, prediction of Jews' betrayal, of uh, Peter's denial, and we'll see some new teaching at the end of the Lord's Supper. Let's look at the preparation, verses 7 through 9. Then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb was to be had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, so that we may eat it. They said to him, where do you want us to prepare it? Now, in my Bible, I have the word had and sacrificed underlined. The Passover had to be sacrificed. In the tradition I grew up in, we had to go to church certain times. We had to go to certain sacraments on certain occasions. We had obligations, they were called, to keep, regardless of how we felt. For the good, pious Jew, the sacrifice had to be offered, but it wasn't just a burden. As I said in the beginning, they loved to go forward and upward to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, but they also had to do it. Because that commemorative perpetual memorial established by God through Moses had not changed. And they were to go up to Passover annually and to do this thing. Now, Passover is a figure of speech. When we refer to uh, D.C., uh, we probably mean the government or the beltway or the bureaucracy, something like that. When you read the word Passover, Passover is the name, Pascha, of the killed animal, the lamb. And so it's a figure of speech for the day. The day is named for the sacrificed animal. And it was a celebration that would occur about 2.30 to 5.30 in the afternoon on the eve of Passover. They would kill the Passover animal done in the court. And then they would bring it home and roast it and have the, baked, the flat bread and wine and bitter herbs and so on as part of the meal. So Jesus is going to send Peter and John to prepare for this. Now, Peter and John are often... Uh, sent out by Christ. They become leaders in the first church. Early in Acts, we read about their roles, and they are frequently mentioned. But what I want you to note in your English Bible, it probably has the word prepare four times in these verses. And whenever you see repetition, it's not an accident. God's word is intentional and deliberate. And we're seeing the, the motif of this being the preparation for what is about to happen. They are to secure a room, have the lamb slain, uh, purchase the herbs, the bread, the wine, all the other parts of the meal. Verse 9, where do you want us to prepare it? And this is sort of like finding a hotel room in a university town on graduation weekend. Everyone's gone up to Jerusalem. Remember, this is a festive time. They are excited to go up to Jerusalem and celebrate Passover. They look forward to it. It's a big deal. It's Thanksgiving and Christmas for us. They can't wait to go do this and their uh, celebration and their feasts. Well, Jesus says to them in verse 10, 
He said to them, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. We have a, some interesting texture in this story. Um, can't get into all of it, but I want to point out a couple of things. The pitcher is an earthenware jar. Um, not to be uh, unkind or uh, sexist, but in the ancient world, women carried water. And this was an, a large earthen vessel of water. So it's going to stand out at the point. A lot of people would be carrying supplies and food. Even in the old city today, you will see people carrying food on their shoulders up and down the city, on little bikes, on little motorbikes, on carts. It's part of the way antiquity works. The word carrying, though, is what catches our attention. It's the same word in Luke 7, 14, where men are carrying a coffin. It's used there as bearing. We have what we call Paul bearers, three men on each side of a coffin and they lift it and they bear that to a hole in the ground. They are bearing a coffin. And then most chilling, we see it in John 9, 17, where Jesus is bearing, same word, a cross. So you're going to see a man bearing and then you're to follow him, which also adds some interest to the story. Now, whether Jesus had supernatural knowledge and he looked and saw this man coming down at a certain point in time can be left for those of you who like to speculate. Uh, nothing wrong with that. He certainly has the ability and power. I think he could do it that way. I think he prepared ahead of time. He'd met this man at some other point. It doesn't really matter. Either way is fine. Uh, the point of it is they're going to discover this and um, the hint is that the man is probably a disciple. In verse 11, he says, tell him the teacher says to you. Why would you call him the rabbi, the teacher there, unless there was some relationship? And if nothing else, he is a rabbinic friend and he's already set aside the room. Now, the way the rooms worked would be, uh, you don't have hotels and conference centers. It, they were B&Bs essentially. And most homes of any size had a room that they would let because when the university graduation occurs, everybody's in town. You want to make a little money. Well, the way antiquity worked was if you had a room that could be set aside for Passover, then afterward they would give you the skin of the lamb and the vessels used in the meal because you don't haul those vessels in on a backpack from a long distance. They're inexpensive. You buy them in, in the town. And so that would be your payment. You'd barter in a sense. You would give them the skin of the lamb and the implements used in the meal. The term furnished also adds some texture to the story and draws some intrigue. The word simply means to spread something out. In Matthew 21, 8 and Mark 11, 8, we read the crowd spread out, same word, their coats on the ground. And others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them out on the ground. Because when the Messiah came in on the triumphal entry, you don't let a king ride on the dirt. You put things on the ground and they're spreading it out in the same picture. And we get the idea of a, a meal that's spread out on the table. And so it's a nice visual of the room being furnished and prepared. Of course, the first century Jews ate on uh, the floor, if you will, on, on low cushions on the floor, leaning on small tables, not like we do sitting upright at tables. And the traditional site of the upper room, when we take groups there, we take them to 
the traditional site. It may or may not be the actual site, as I tell our, our groups. Um, it may not be, but this one has a lot to make it attractive. There's an outside egress, a stair that you go up into, which is very important because you don't want people trolloping through your home. It is a very large room. It is an up room over a residence, and it's within walking distance to most of the events that are going to happen in the next 24 to 72 hours in the life of Christ. If nothing else, it gives you the feel of the first century of what it might have been like to be in that room. Verse 13, Peter and John find everything just as he told them. There's an expectancy in the air. They're looking forward to this last Passover. In fact, Jesus and John says, I've eagerly awaited. I've looked forward to this meal with you. We would put it in our terms, I'm so excited, I can't wait to have this Passover with you. And yet only he knows what he's saying. From their vantage, one thing's occurring. From his vantage, a completely different few hours await him. The Passover feast recalling the history and a slave nation born into freedom in all of the cosmic spiritual realm is watching a new era of deliverance occur. This won't be a temporary salvation as the author of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. This will be the Lamb of God, not a Paschal Lamb of God. It will be not merely unblemished, but it will be perfect. And it will not be the son of the son of an animal. It will be the son of God. And this Paschal Lamb, who will become our sacrifice, as John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. One last meal, one last teaching awaits, and in the background, the betrayer lurks, looking to devour. Jesus was the faithful pilgrim worshiper. He went up to Passover. He's carried up as an infant to Passover. And insofar as we understand history in the text, he never missed a Passover of his 33-some years. As a child, as a young boy, he was going up to Passover. And this is the last time it will ever have meaning or ever, ever be needed in the way it is done. God is preparing to fulfill the law. God is preparing a table, literal and metaphorical, for the Son of Man to illustrate his body broken, his blood shed for their sins, for our sins. In our place, instead of us, on our behalf, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves in all of history, all of the cosmic realm beyond our understanding or comprehension is stopped in peering in to what is about to happen. And Satan is busy working because he doesn't want it to happen. This preparation will be the only remedy for sin. All other preparations are done after the meal is over. It's cleanup time. This is one preparation that will have eternal consequences. And why the preparation is so important in every detail of all of his life, really of salvation history up to this point, culminates in what is going to happen at that table. And then he will commemorate it and he will tell us, do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it's a perpetual memorial in a new way, in a different way for all believers in Jesus Christ. One is prepared as the betrayer, the son of perdition. One is prepared as the obedient, the son of God. So what? It may be a bit of a stretch, and you may need to think on this on your week. And as you pray, I hope you spend time every day in the Word. I hope you spend a few moments 
with the noise and the electronics off with just you and your Bible and the Lord and maybe a pad of paper, a book. And when I think of all that is culminated in this preparation that the text is telling us, can't miss the emphasis, I asked myself the question this past week, Michael, what is your life a preparation of? It's a bit of a hermeneutical jump, I will argue. But if you're like me, in some ways I hope you're not at all like me, but in other ways, if you're like me, you focus on the horizontal all the time. My marriage, my kids, my finances, my kids' marriages, my kids' futures, their college, their relationships, my health, my parents' health, my mom's health, our friends, our family, our, our job, our career, our country. I probably make up for what the rest of you don't worry about, worrying about our country. I worry about our country a lot. I know worries of sin. I just confessed, okay? I worry about our country a lot. I worry about my kids' futures. I'm deeply concerned about where it's all going, what's going to happen. It's all on the horizontal level. The sovereign God is in control as his son is being betrayed. Or to say another way, my experiences rarely align with my theology. The world never tells me the right thing about my God. God is in control when the Christ is betrayed and crucified. And God is in control in 2012. I may not like the horizontal experiences, but it really doesn't matter what I like. And I ask it again, what is your life a preparation of? What is my life a preparation for? And if we spend 95% on the horizontal, are we missing the vertical? What is God doing in the midst of a world gone insane into sin and bondage and darkness and malevolence and unbridled evil and hubris and greed? God's not walking heaven's floor, wringing his hands. He's a sovereign who sent his son as the only solution we have. And should we not, of all people, be the most confident in our Christ and what he's accomplished and what he's done, no matter what the world tries to tell you? You prepared? Spend all of our life getting ready for something. Are you ready? And what does it look like for you? Father in heaven, we are busy with stuff and things and that which seems important, all fine and good. Yet you are working in ways we do not comprehend. Help us to move a bit from our horizontal obsession to, by faith, to trust in you when we cannot see. To live faithfully no matter what our experience tries to tell us. To be confident worshipers of a confident king no matter what the world does around us. Use us far beyond our imagination and ways to influence for good. 
But no matter what the world does, may we be found faithful and movable, trusting in you, even when our experience yells at us the opposite. We pray and ask in the power of Christ's name. Amen.